Well, if you have your Bibles uh, with you, open to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to continue our journey through Joshua. I'm not going to start with chapter 5, though. I want to back up and set the stage from chapter 4. Just picking up with the last few verses from chapter 4. And then I'm going to read a section and pray, and then I will comment on it. So back to chapter 4, verse 21. God said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of this Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. So read the words of the living God. Our Father, we ask you to fill this place with your spirit. Teach us. Teach us the lesson you wanted the Jews to understand in this time, and then teach us what you want for us to learn here today as we study and ponder your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the passage there at the end of chapter 4 is building on what we talked about last week. If you weren't here or if you've already forgotten, as is often the case. Last week, we talked about chapter 4, which dealt with the memorial stones. Remember, God had brought Israel through the Jordan River on dry ground, and he said, I want you to bring 12 big stones and pile them up on the other side so that for generations, when your children ask, what are these stones for, you can tell them about God's power in bringing you through the Jordan River. So that's what we talked about last week. And here, these last couple verses of chapter four, God says, this is what I want people to know. I want the nations to know. I want your children to be able to tell the nations that the Lord your God is mighty. He stopped the river. He's mighty, he's strong, he's powerful. But then did you notice the last phrase there? So that you, the Jewish people, would fear the Lord forever. The question I have for you this morning as we get started is, the God that you worship, the God that we've just sung about, the God that you tell others about, the God who is, is he a God whom you fear We don't like to think in those terms, it seems like, in in modern-day Christianity. We don't like to think about fearing God. In fact, the translators so often replace the word fear with maybe the word reverence 
or the word respect. Even though the Hebrew word and in the New Testament, the Greek word, those words are very clearly the words for fear. But I don't think reverence and respect communicate the same thing. Think about what we mean by reverence. If you have reverence for something, you're kind of somber, you're, you're kind of quiet. If you, if you walk into a, maybe a cathedral where there's just kind of a, a, a majestic quality about it, you might walk in and kind of quiet. You're not going to let your kids go running through Westminster Abbey in London. Hopefully you won't let your kids do that. Probably get tossed out if you do. It's a place of reverence. Or in a funeral, it's just, it's inappropriate to be casual and cavalier at a funeral because it's, it's a somber occasion. We'd say people need to have some reverence, maybe out of a cemetery. You know what, it, what it's like when you go visit the tombstone of, of someone that you love who's, who's gone and, and you're not really silly in a cemetery, typically. You're reverent, you're respectful. But it's not the same thing as fear. We use respect in terms of mutual respect. I need to respect your rights. I need to re respect who you are as a person. And you should respect me. It's mutual. And if you disrespect me, then I'm offended. And if I disrespect you, you are offended. But it's not a matter of fear. You're not terrified of disrespecting me. Unless you're my children. None of those words really get at it. The word is fear. And there's a reason for it. Because God is mighty. And he's still mighty in the new covenant. He's still mighty for Christians. There's a passage that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And it's a, it's a battleground passage for this historic debate between Calvinists and Arminians. And hopefully you're familiar with those terms. Calvinists, to put it very simplistically, are folks that really major on the passages in the scripture that talk about God's sovereignty. He is sovereign. And there's a tendency among Calvinists at times to sort of diminish the passages that talk about man's responsibility. And the Arminians are those that tend to amplify the passages that talk about man's responsibility and, and often kind of push down, set aside the passages that really talk about God's sovereignty. And there's battle back and forth and back and forth historically. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? And the Bible says, yes, they're both true. The passage I'm referring to is in Philippians 2 where Paul says, work out your salvation you know that passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the Arminians love to grab that and say, see, see, he says, you have to work out your salvation. You have to do that. You're a free will person. You have to work out your salvation. And the Calvinists say, aha, but you stopped too soon. Read the very next verse. It says, for God is at work both to do and to will in you. It's God's doing. They're both true. You work, God works. Neither of those are the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. Now that is on the heels 
of where Paul says, Jesus, in his humility, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on human flesh so that he could go to the cross and die for our sins. But that's not the end of the story. What happened after he died? He rose from the dead and God highly exalted him, Paul said, to the right hand of the majesty on high. God gave to Jesus rule and reign over the entire universe. That's what Dan was talking about. That's why we sing all these songs. You realize the first song we sang, Joy to the World, that's not really about the babe in the manger. It was written as a second advent hymn. Joy to the world, the king is reigning and he's coming back. He is ruling over heaven and earth right now. And Paul says, God gave Jesus the name which is above every name. It's not the name Jesus, it's the title Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. And then he quotes from Isaiah, where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's a day coming, beloved. Every human being who's ever been created, every man, woman, boy, and girl who exists now, who used to live, who will live in the future, every single one will say with their mouths, Jesus is the King. Even those who denied it their entire lives, when that day comes, they will say, I can't deny it anymore. There he is right in front of me. Jesus is king of everything. And Paul said, they will be on their knees before him. Not, oh, Jesus, I respect you. As if Jesus is going to bow back to us. Some sort of a mutual bowing. And we're going to be on our faces before the majesty and glory and holiness of the high king. Our teeth are going to be shattering when we're in the presence of the Almighty. And Paul's point is, work out your salvation because it's that God who is at work within you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We love those passages like in Hebrews where it says, enter boldly the throne of grace. Why does he have to put it that way? Why does he need to give the admonition to come boldly into the throne of grace? Because anybody who has any sense of the holiness and the majesty and the kingliness of God realizes, I want to go see him if he shows up, but he's God. There's a, I have to be told that it's okay to come boldly, that there will be grace there because he's holy. Even in the new covenant, those who understand and believe the forgiveness that we have in the cross, we dare not take lightly the mightiness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. If he walked in the back door today, we would all fall on our face before him.
You ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? These are a couple in the book of Acts where they come to the apostle Peter. First, Ananias comes. He's the husband. He's the man. He comes, and Peter asks him a question. How much money did you contribute to what we're doing here? And Ananias gave out a number, and Peter said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You know that's not how much you gave. And God struck Ananias dead on the spot. A couple hours later, his wife shows up. Hey, Sapphira, how much did you and your husband give to this project? And she gave the same false number. And Peter says, why, Sapphira, have you chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit? The same men who carried your dead husband out are coming to carry you out. And God struck her dead. Now, which testament is the book of Acts in? It's not like that Old Testament God is the God to be feared, but Jesus is just so nice. I mean, he's a baby for crying out loud. Cute, pudgy. You want to just go shake his cheeks? Not a chance. He's the same holy, almighty God in the new covenant as he was in the old covenant. And Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How dare we ever have a casual, cavalier attitude when thinking about, talking about God himself. He's the king. It's not a terrifying fear for us as Christians, but it's a fear nonetheless. Is that the God you serve? Is that the God we present to the world? Is there anything about our conversation with unbelievers as we describe God, anything that gets at the trembling that every human being should think of, should experience when thinking about God? There has to be or else we are not presenting the one true God. You know who did not fear God? The first generation of Israelites who were led out of slavery from Egypt. They didn't fear God. Here was a people, millions of people, who were enslaved. They were slaves to Pharaoh, and he was a harsh taskmaster. By the end of the story there, he has ramped up their workload big time, and he is oppressing them. People in our day want to talk about oppression going on right now. Not like then. This was hard work and he was cruel and he was intentionally cruel. And they cried out to God for help. The people of Israel cried out for God to God for help. And he brought a deliverer. He brought Moses to lead them out of slavery. And they watched with their eyes as God turned water into blood. And he brought all the other plagues culminating in the big one. The firstborn son of everybody in Egypt died, including Pharaoh himself. His son died at the hand of God. And Moses led them out, and they came to the Red Sea, and God said, Moses, just stretch out your hands, and I'm going to part the Red Sea. And they all walked through. 
the people of Israel saw all of this, and they looked back and saw their enemies drowned in the water in God's power. And they weren't a mile away from the Red Sea, and they start grumbling and complaining, oh, that we had died in Egypt. Because out here we got nothing to eat. I mean, there we had fish, we had cucumbers, we had good vegetables. Out here we got nothing. We're going to starve to death. We have no, nothing to drink. And what does God do? He causes water to come out of a rock. You ever been really thirsty? And you pick up a rock and you think, God provided enough water for millions of people from a rock. And then he takes them to the land of promise. It's right over there across the Jordan River. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to bless you. You are going to experience heaven on earth. And they send in the spies to check it out. And the spies come back. And what do they say? There are giants in the land. We can't go in there. They will kill us. What was the problem? They were afraid of man. They were not afraid of God. And God said, I swore in my wrath not a man over 20 will enter that promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb, because they trusted me. So God led that entire nation back away from the promised land to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone in that generation was dead. They didn't fear God, they feared man. You know who did fear God? The pagans. Did you catch that in chapter 5, verse 1? Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, when they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Here are these heathen, these idol worshipers. And they were terrified of this God. They'd had 40 years of hearing the stories. They heard the God of that nation, Israel, led his people out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed every nation that the Jews encountered for 40 years. And then they look out over the Jordan, and there they are, millions of them, right over there. And they go, oh, this is not good. We've heard of their God. Their God is powerful. He is strong. And they start plotting and planning. What are they going to do? And then they sent out the scouts the next day to figure out what's going on. And all of those people, those millions of people who were on the other side of the Jordan, you know, they're thinking, okay, how much time do we have? 
they've got to go to a bridge. Well, there's not a bridge anywhere near. They've got to wait till it's a different season so they can find a shallow place and cross. I mean, we've got some time here. Let's plan our defenses. And they send the scouts out and they look at, oh, they're not on the other side of the Jordan anymore. They're on our side of the Jordan. And it says their hearts melted. Their courage left them. They were terrified of that nation's God, and they couldn't even breathe, it says, in their fear. This is the God who is. And we need to talk about the God who is in such a way that unbelievers whom we are talking to understand how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God. If we don't present the holy majesty of God, his grace is meaningless. His kindness is not kindness unless it's juxtaposed to his severity. Otherwise, he's just Santa Claus, but better. He doesn't just come around once a year. He's always there to fill our life with all the things we want. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we all deserve nothing but the eternal, unmitigated wrath of a holy God. Not just wandering in the desert for 40 years, but for all eternity, experiencing his unmitigated justice. And Jesus came and he took that unmitigated justice in our behalf so we could be forgiven and right with him. That's what Dan was getting at. That joy that we are in right standing with God is only joyful for us if we understand how bad it is to be his enemy. Well, he is a gracious God. Praise the Lord. The rest of chapter 5 is God showing his kindness to this new generation, this next generation of Israel. The old generation, those who did not believe, they perished in the wilderness, just as God said, but now their sons and daughters are here, and God is going to bring them into the land. Do you remember when that first generation came to the Jordan after the spies brought back the report, and they said, we can't go in there, there are giants in that land, and our children will die. God says, oh yeah? I'm going to lead you into the wilderness and you all are going to die, but I'm going to take your children, the ones who you said would die, I'm going to take them into the land of promise. And that's what we see in Joshua. So God now begins to show his grace and kindness to this second generation. In verses 2 through 8, we have every pastor's favorite preaching text. It's the section on circumcision, and it's rather detailed and graphic. My wife always reads the text ahead of time during the week, 
and, and she tries, she wants to know, you know, like, ooh, what are you going to say here, and what are you going to talk about here, and she always thinks she knows where I'm going, you know, I bet you're going to say this, and then, you know, I'm forced to find a new illustration because I can't let her be right about that, and, and that's kind of how this all goes, and so this week, it's like Tuesday, Wednesday, she's reading the passage, she goes, huh, how are you going to apply this text of scripture? Yeah, and Friday, I was meeting with Eric, and we were doing our sermon prep, and uh, he goes, um, I'm not really planning to go into a lot of detail on this section, are you? I won't tell you the first title we sent to, or going to send to Alicia that uh, we decided we wouldn't, but it was, uh, it was not for the faint of heart. Anyway, so this whole section on circumcision is not the most enjoyable for some of us of the male persuasion to read. However, it is God's grace. Circumcision was the mark in the flesh that God gave to his people. All the way back to Abraham, leading up through Isaac and Jacob and then the nation of Israel, he said, this is your end of this. You must circumcise your sons to mark you all out as mine. This brings you into the covenant. This brings you as my people. But that defiant generation that refused to go in the promised land the first time as they wandered in the wilderness, they did not circumcise their boys. So God brings this next generation across the river or through the river to this other side and now he says, before I hand over the land to you, everybody needs to be circumcised. What's he doing in that? Saying, I'm no longer angry at you. The covenant is still in force. You are still my people. I want you to bear the mark in your body that you are special to me. And I am going to bring you in to the promised land. And so he says in verse 9, after they've been circumcised, after they've healed, verse 9 he says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. These were the sons of slaves. Some of them had been slaves. Remember, it was, the cutoff was 20 years old. So some of these people were 20 at the Exodus when they, when they left Egypt very vivid and clear memories of everything that happened in Egypt. They knew what it was like to be oppressed. They knew the hard labor, and they had experienced firsthand God's deliverance. And now they're 60. They've got their own children. But they grew up as slaves. I was thinking this week, what would it have been like to be a black family in 1870, 1880, 1890. I mean, okay, the war's over. Slaves are freed. You're, you're free, men and women. But you don't just flip the switch and say, oh, good, we're free. Great, let's just live as free people. The, the, the stigma, the weight, the, the horror of what they had been through don't just turn that off. And their children who were born free, but born to people who still carried the weight 
of having been slaves simply because of the color of their skin, you, you know that had impact in the household for a, for a few generations. And it wasn't as though the white people in America just all accepted the black people either. Like, okay, now that's done. We can move on and forget that ever happened. It, that's not how it was for decades. These Jews, some of them had been slaves. They were children of slaves. The stigma, the reproach, the, the dishonor, the disgrace of not being free. And God says, today, I've taken it all away. Today, I've put my mark on you, and I'm taking you into the promised land. And you are free. I want you to know you're free. I want you to feel freedom, and I want you to experience all of my joy and goodness that's coming. We're going to leave the past behind and walk into a new era. Remember, some of these people have spent the last 40 years of their life in a desert. It's all about to change because he's taken away their disgrace. Verse 10, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover. Some of these people were there at the first Passover. They were there the night the angel of death swept through the nation and killed all of the Egyptian firstborn sons. They remember hearing the weeping and wailing even from Pharaoh's house when the firstborn sons were struck down. And how they ate quickly and they left. And God said, from now on, I want you every year to remember what I did as I passed over the house of Israel who had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. But apparently they had forgotten in the desert. But here, again, they celebrate to remember God's for us. God is gracious. God is forgiving. He has protected us. And so they celebrate this Passover before they enter into the land. Verse 11. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you heard all these stories, the manna, oh, what, a, what a great story, like, like bread coming out of heaven. It's a miracle. I mean, for all these years, they're in the middle of the desert, and God provided this food every day. I remember as a boy thinking, yeah, every day God just plops off food, all the food I can eat. You know, I have a pretty high tolerance when it comes to food for repetition. My wife will amen that. Every morning I have the same eggs and ham like every single morning. I have my protein shake every afternoon. Dinner's a little varied, but Krista will say, I need to come up with new stuff. And I'm thinking, there's nothing wrong with the old stuff. You know, she's got eight or 10 things she does over and over and over again, and I'm happy as can be. 
if the only thing I had to eat all day, every day was manna, I think even I would be tempted to complain. I mean, well, there's only so many variations of manna you can create in a desert, right? You boil it, you bake it, banana bread, banana split, only without the ice cream and the whipped cream and the sprinkles on top. I mean, manna cakes, manna patties, manna rolls. I mean, Man, a man, a man, a man, a man. In fact, they complained the one time, you remember, and God said, you want meat? I'll give you meat. <laughs> Brought down every quail in the universe down, and they had meat up to here. Can you imagine eating this? We don't even know what it is. They describe it as like, like coriander seed. It's not coriander seed, but it's like coriander seed, which I still don't know what that means, and bdellium. I don't know what that is either. That's not helpful. I have no idea. But for 40 years, this is about all you eat? It was amazing. It was God's provision. Even in his wrath, he provided. But it's the same thing every meal, all day, every day, but not anymore. That night, or that next day after the Passover, they got to eat of the fruit of the promised land. And the manna stopped and never again would they have to eat that stuff. What is God doing here? He's giving them just a little, a little taste, a little hint of what is coming. Now they have work to do. They still have to destroy all those nations and drive them out of Canaan's land. And it's gonna be hard. It's battle, like literal, real battle with swords. And it's gonna be years before they finally get rest, but they get a little foretaste of what it's going to be like, and someday when God has driven out all of their enemies, it'll be nothing but feasting of the goodness of this land. God's gracious, and he's kind, and he makes good on his promises. Except, these are temporal promises in a covenant that is contingent on their obedience. We know the stories. This generation does pretty well. It's not very long until Israel forgets their God. They turn their back on him. And now God has to punish them because they're not trusting. They're not obeying. They no longer fear the Lord. The more you read the Old Testament, if you read it right, you have to be so full of gratitude that we are in the new covenant. It is not a covenant contingent on our obedience. In fact, it's a covenant that says the only way you can become part of this covenant is to admit you haven't obeyed and you need a savior. It's such a stark contrast to that covenant. And God doesn't give us, in the new covenant, he doesn't give us all the same temporal promises. We're waiting for that new heavens and new earth. As Dan was describing, when the tears will finally be gone and, and we will feast. I don't know what we're going to feast on exactly, but we're going to feast. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. 
but it's not going to come in this life in all its fullness. That's yet future. But oh, is God gracious. And, and you see the parallels, I hope. We no longer take a physical mark on our body as Christians. That's not the mark of the new covenant. Circumcision means nothing. But what is the mark? Circumcision of the heart. When God changes our heart, what marks a Christian? We have new hearts. We have new desires. We now want to please God. He's transforming us and making us righteous. He has declared us righteous because of Christ, and now he's making us righteous. And our lives bear the mark of the new covenant. And he's accepted us, and he's changing us. And we celebrate the Passover, not the Jewish Passover, but the Lord's Supper. We did that last week. We remember, we proclaim his death until he comes. And we remember we are the ones who should have died at the hands of God's wrath, but instead we will live forever. And every time we have the Passover meal slash the, the Lord's Supper meal, we remember he loves us, he forgives us, he is a gracious and kind God. And he's given us a foretaste. The Spirit of God is called the first fruits. Romans chapter 8, he's the first fruits. We have not received all that we will receive. We are not blessed with everything that is ours. The inheritance is coming. But he's given us a little taste of what Canaan's land is going to be like. And sure, it appears in, the, in our temporal blessings and that kind of thing, but far more, it is that transformation by the Spirit of God. It's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. What's going to make heaven heaven? And the new earth, the new earth. Well, first and foremost, it's being in the presence of God. We will see him like he is. Jesus. We will look at him. We will see him. We will dwell with him. Theologians historically call it the beatific vision, the blessed vision. We're going we're gonna to be so blessed just by seeing him. But you know what else is going to be amazing? Everybody sitting around you will be entirely sanctified. Wives, your husbands are going to be entirely sanctified. Husbands, your wives are going to be entirely holy, pure, and righteous. And your children, parents, as far off as that may seem, if they're in Christ, in that day, they're going to be perfect because the Spirit of God will so have transformed every one of us that there is no sin anywhere. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being around people who are entirely selfless? Like, never an exception? Some of you have heard me say this before. When I think of all the miracles of Jesus, virgin birth, walking on water, raising Lazarus, even rising from the dead 
Sometimes I think none of those are as amazing as the fact that he was sinless. Because I can't relate to rising from the dead, and I can't relate to walking on water. But I know what sin is, and it's really hard to imagine ever being in a place and a time where I never am tempted to sin in the least. But that's what's coming. And therefore, there will be no personal conflicts, no disappointments, no discouragements whatsoever. Everything is perfect. Well, we're not there yet, right? Even in our own households, even in the church. But the Spirit of God, the first fruits, is changing us and drawing us closer to Christ and making us more like Christ. And we get a little glimpse every now and then of what it means to be holy and be among holy people. That's where it's all heading. And what does he call us to do? Trust him. Obey him. Enjoy his good gifts in hope. And work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is the king of all glory who is at work both to will and to do in us for his good pleasure. That we might be innocent and blameless children in a dark and wicked world. We are better than the Jews were. Because we have the Holy Spirit we have the eternal promises, and he is making all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this visual representation of Canaan's land, of the promised land, and, and showing us your people the consequences of not fearing you, in contrast to what it's like to fear, to obey, to walk in your spirit. Lord, I pray for us as Front Range Alliance Church that we will be people who fear you in the right way. We're not terrified of you because we do believe the gospel. But may we never take you for granted. May we never forget that the Lamb is the lion. And we would never enter the presence of a lion casually. Lord, thank you for the promise of what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. Thank you for the bread of life that will never come to an end. All who eat of him will live forever. Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who take that message to the world. Thank you for the report we heard from our sister earlier. Be with her in the upcoming months and years. Lord, strengthen her body, but more so strengthen her spirit and her soul, and use her words, use her ministry to build up the kingdom of God, spiritually and numerically. Lord, bring new people into your kingdom through her work and through those that she's working with, and bring people, build them up, edify them in the truth of Jesus Christ as she ministers. Lord, may that be true of all of us 
here today that we would be actively working to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see men, women, boys, and girls come to faith, see them built up, all with a view to that day when we will stand on holy ground in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name.